0: listeners, and welcome back to Black in Boston and Beyond. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on Black in Boston and Beyond, we have Ingrid Askew, a legendary activist in the Massachusetts area, including Boston. Welcome to the show, Ingrid. Thank you. Nice to be here, Hetty. Yes. I've been waiting to interview you. I'm looking so forward. You have lived just a great life of (laughs) activism. And I think you are an important uh, voice that everybody, not just in the Boston, Massachusetts area, but the world. And, you know, you are a Black woman international as well. We're going to talk about your uh, international experiences too here. So today, what we're going to do is talk a little bit about Ingrid's uh, many accomplishments as a scholar, activist, social justice warrior. But first, we're going to start a little bit with her uh, professional background and personal biography and her journey into activism. So Ingrid, tell us a little bit about your personal biography and, and how you came to get involved in social justice work, not only in the Massachusetts region, but the world.
1: Well, (laughs) yeah, it's quite a story. And sometimes, you know, looking back at all of it, I can't quite believe that so much has happened. You know, I just had a birthday. I'm 77 years old. I've been doing this, this work for many, many, many years. I left Boston in 1978 as a single mother with my son and who at that time was eight years old. And we moved to Amherst, Massachusetts and I came here to this area for a specific job that I was offered as an art therapist. And I had certification in art therapy at the time. So I came here and began working here and learning this community, which is quite political. And, you know, it's a five college area. So I got involved with a lot of the local activists and artists and decided that I wanted to go back to school And so I went to UMass Amherst and studied theater. So my background is in theater, uh, mainly in acting and directing. And I did that for many years in Amherst and created, you know, quite a body of work with local artists and had my own theater company. And then I was a member of New World Theater that was at UMass at the time that was direct under the direction of Roberta Uno and worked with um, that company as a director and as a performer. And during those years I got involved in a lot of political actions on you know on the UMass campus and in the town mainly doing anti-racism work, looking at social justice issues and it started informing my work as a theater maker. And so I created a lot of theater pieces and performed in a lot of theater pieces that were either original or plays by, by Black playwrights that look at the issues of be, what it means to be Black in America. And I formed a theater company uh, called First World Images, looking at the life of, of um, Black folks in America, in the first world. You know, but what our lives were like in the communities. In the early 90s, I became a Buddhist and was connected with the Buddhist order, Nipponza Miyahoji, uh, out of Japan. And they build peace pagodas all over the world. And the first peace pagoda to arise in the United States was here in my community, close by a suburb of Amherst in Leverett, Massachusetts. That's where my real activism life began was was with that order. They're an integral part of the World Peace Movement. And it was with them where I learned to become a community organizer and an organizer of pilgrimages.
0: So tell us a little bit more about how, because we are going to get into this conversation about arts and humanities and the power uh-huh. of art. But tell us maybe a little bit more about some of the artworks you created. It sounds like your story um centers you right in the Black Arts Movement era, not only in the, region, um, the world. Yeah, yeah, really- I
1: came a little after. kind of like at the tail end of the Black Arts Movement, but met many of those amazing people from that from that movement. Um, just by the fact of being here at the university, um, where there used to be uh, what they call the Pan African Institute, and oh. so we had people like Archie Shepp and Max Roach. On faculty, uh, Sonia Sanchez was, um, uh, across the road at Amherst College. So I got to sit at the feet of these people and take classes, you know, with them. Um, I took, um, two of Archie Shep's classes. You know, he's one of my favorite, um, jazz musicians and he and I became really good friends. And so the Black arts movement has really, really, I wasn't a part of it, I w- um, but it really inspired me. And and inspired my work, and it still does today. Sure, definitely. Uh, yeah, the, the the body work that I that I either created or uh, was a was a part of really came through through new world New World Theater and working with local artists in this area, just creating theater pieces, which was a lot. I would say from maybe 1983 up until not the 97. I worked with that organization, plus having my own, uh, which was First World Images.
0: I want to put you on the spot here and and have you defend the arts for us, especially now with, you know, ongoing cuts to arts and humanities uh, curriculum and education, particularly in higher education, not just K through 12. You know, defend the arts and humanities for us and tell us why you think these subjects are more important now you know, now more than ever, I think, we need the arts and the humanities. What would weigh in on this for us as someone? Yes,
1: has, yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. glad to, glad to. I have w- witnessed firsthand as an art educator and as a um, uh, a theater maker, how it changes lives. It really, really does. And especially with our young people, the way in which I approach my work, is through um storytelling and having people share their own stories. Um it, it helps to build self-esteem, self-confidence, and it really, really makes quite a difference. And it doesn't take long. You get a kid to learn how to use his or her voice, you know, um, that matter to them and not just handing them a script and saying, okay, these are your lines, you're going to play this character. No, I want to hear your story, your story is important. Tell us about your life. And um, And so through writing and conversations and theater games, we create theater pieces based on things that are important to people, especially our youth. And it changes them. It changes them. They feel heard. They feel acknowledged. They feel loved. They feel respected. And that's what everybody wants. Right. You sure. know, Um, you want to know that people, you know, think that 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 what you have to say is important and that your story matters and that you matter. Your life matters. And I have seen young people change almost overnight. You know, you get them in a rehearsal hall and show them what they have to offer and that they are brilliant and that they have talent and that they're beautiful and their stories are beautiful, they start to feel good about themselves. You know, they start feeling more confident um, in themselves. And today, more than, just like you said, more than ever is what is needed with our young people. It's a sad thing that the educational system doesn't realize that and doesn't doesn't have more focus on the arts in schools. been watching my my young granddaughter who's 17 years old has been giving opportunities to share her story to to share her brilliance and she's getting ready to go to the boston conservatory wow Wow. but it comes from nurturing you know if she didn't have that nurturing from her family and from the the arts teachers that she has the school that she goes to is really really good you know it's better than 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 a lot of other schools, especially schools in our inner cities. You know, you know where they have an art department, they have a dance department, they have a a theater department, and I am watching these kids thrive.
0: Yeah, I, I think everything you said is so valid here. Culture has always been the primary location of identity formation, and I think Black life and the centrality of culture work. And the Black experience is, I think, so vital. Mm. Um, you know, everything that you've said here, I think, is just so important. But you've also lived internationally. Let's let's turn to your life as a Black woman international.
1: Okay, as an
0: expat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. How did that journey begin?
1: Yeah, that journey began, um, as I said a little earlier, um, um, I became a Buddhist in uh, the early 90s. And this particular order is uh, connected with the World Peace Movement. And they do these amazing pilgrimages, but mainly in places of conflict in war-torn countries. And they go, and it's an interfaith uh, organization. So everything that they do, they, they bring in people from, uh, from all faith bases. And so in 1991, right after the release of Nelson Mandela, my direct teacher, Sister Claire Carter, who, who grew up Irish Catholic and ended up um, after college ordaining as a as a Buddhist nun, right? Mm. Um, she became my teacher. She's a she's a, a, a devotee of the Nipponzan Miyahochi order, and she was in Sri Lanka on a a peace mission. And they walk, they walk, and they carry a prayer drum and they chant. And so she was on this peace mission. And she says on this one particular day of walking, they were going up a mountain, um, the sacred mountain Sri Sri Padha, in uh, Sri Lanka. And she said she just got this, like almost like an epiphany. It's something just kept gnawing at her. What you're doing is good, but you need to be doing it in your own war-torn country of America. Mm-hmm. And so she took that as you know the work that she and I do to get what we're doing together. Uh, doing anti-racism and social justice work. And so she, um uh, a letter from Sri Lanka and said, I have to speak to you about something. As soon as I get back, I'll be back on this date. When can we meet? And when she got back, she came right to my house, right from the air airport. <laughs> and we sat and we talked. And she says, I want to initiate a pilgrimage. And I want us to look at the legacy of slavery, which is racism. And I want to create a walk that takes us from here back to the African continent. And I was floored, you know, because I know what it takes to organize something like that. And I wasn't sure if I was up to it. I wasn't sure if I had the capacity to do something like that. I mean, I was a theater artist, you know, I just, you know, I'm waiting for the next script you know, mm-hmm. to show up. to direct or perform. it, And so this kind of like threw me off guard and my mother who was alive at the time was my champion. And my mother said, and that's why I shared this, this request with my mother. And I said, what should I do? And she said, what do you mean? What should you do? You, you, you should do it. And I said, yeah, but it's going to take about a year to be away from home. And she says, well, that's what you're going to have to do. And she says, Ingrid, how how can you, you can't turn something like that down. This is your work. This is what you've been working towards all your life. Hmm. And she says, and you have to do it. And I said, yeah, but I, who's going to take care of my kids? Who's going to pay my rent? <laughs> and she said, don't worry about that. I'm their grandmother and I want you to do this. And I think you should do it. I'll pay your rent and I will take care of the kids. Wow. This is something you have to do. She's a great lady. She's a great lady. And so I said yes to uh, the call. So it took us about six years to organize this pilgrimage, and it was called the Interfaith Pilgrimage of the Middle Passage, Retracing the Journey of Slavery. And it took us six years to organize it, and we set foot to pavement on May twenty-third, 1998, and we walked the eastern seaboard of the United States. Visiting all of the slave ship ports and all the slave ship port cities and the towns in between all the way down from, from Leverett, Massachusetts to New Orleans. And it took us about six months to do that. And at every place that we stopped, we, we would fellowship with different churches, with different social justice organizations, civil rights organizations. We went through civil rights country. And visited all of the the important and iconic places along the way, offering prayers for those that perished in the slave trade. And we did ceremonies. We had people from all faith bases um, with us. We had Christians and Jews and Muslims and Baha'is and Buddhists. And we had international friends come from Japan and from South America to be with us and a couple of from Europe and we walked that journey together it was arduous it was black folks and white folks because that was the main idea was to have people of african descent and people of european descent walking this combined history together and discussing ways in which we could engage with each other to begin to dismantle racism and <laughs> that was quite a journey very arduous. There were good days and there were some really terrible days with people who held a lot of guilt, held a lot Mm. of anger, held a lot of shame, and held a lot of grief. Mm. And for us to try to work through these things together. Once we got to New Orleans, someone chartered a bus for us and got us to Key West, Florida, where we boarded a 40-foot schooner. There were fifty of us that started the journey by the time we got to Florida there were there were about forty, mm-hmm. and we had some new new people. some people only wanted to walk the u s portion okay. and so they left in New Orleans, but then new people joined on because they wanted to do the Caribbean and West Africa and a small uh delegation went to Brazil to represent the pilgrimage and Brazil being the um being so important because that's where the largest population of Africans were taken, sure, in the in the slave trade. And so then from the Caribbean, of the Caribbean, we went to Cuba, we went to Jamaica, and then Haiti, and then Puerto Rico, and then from Puerto Rico, everybody flew back to New York, and we boarded a plane to the Cape Verde Islands, and we were in Cape Verde for for about two weeks. And then on from Cape Verde, we flew to Senegal and then worked our way down the west coast of Africa to Nigeria and staying in villages. And we stayed coastal, so we were always on the ocean. And visit the slave ship ports, all of those holding stations, what they call the slave castles or the forts, Mm -hmm. and doing the same thing, offering prayers, doing ceremonies and rituals. And fellowshipping with the local people, local organizers. This trip was a walk of faith. This pilgrimage was definitely a walk of faith. We had no major funding. People came on their own steam. People were maxing out their credit cards. We got stranded a couple of times because we ran out of money. Sometimes we slept outside in tents. We slept in churches, in church sanctuaries, in Sunday school classrooms, in school gymnasiums. Once in a while, somebody would treat us to a hotel and overnight stay in a hotel, which was great because we could take showers and sleep in real beds. But it was it was a walk of faith. And we found that every place that we went, people took care of us because they believed in what we were doing. Wow. And yeah, and so we decided we had a great advisory board. And we had people like Cornell West and Sonia Sanchez and John Bracey, Tom Feelings. We had some Dr. David Du Bois, Dr. Vincent Harding. We had an, an amazing group of advisors that worked on this for that six years that we were organizing. We could go to them and uh, they would give us advice. They would, they would, you know, provide information and, and people, you know, mm. um, for us to engage with. And so Desmond Tutu uh, was our honorary chair and just by him, writing two letters opened i can't tell you how many doors were open to us especially on the african continent the council of of um, african churches and so we decided that you know the history of slavery in south africa is is different it was a different trade same mm-hmm. people but different ocean we decided that we were going to end the pilgrimage in south africa because for us that was we wanted to end In a place that was a ray of hope on the African continent. And at that time, it was South Africa. Nelson Mandela was, had just finished, you know, his five year as president. He was passing the baton on to, um, Thabo Mbeke. And so it was an exciting time in South Africa. You know, it was the beginning of a, of a new dispensation. And so we said, that's where we want to end the pilgrimage. After hearing all this egregious, History in all these different places, and hearing the stories uh, and the testimonies uh, from the different chiefs and people that that we encountered, we said no. We want to. We want to end in a place that, that has a beautiful happy ending, and uh, so we ended in in South Africa. I always knew, Hetty, that I was not gonna go back to the U.S. once the pilgrimage ended.
0: Mm.
1: It was thirteen months, and I knew that. I needed to know more and I needed to know more about myself, not as an African-American, but as an African and what I lost sure, and what I didn't know. And I needed to know more. I needed to find out more. But I wasn't sure where I was going to end. You know, like I fell in love with Benin. I fell in love with Haiti and I really liked Ghana and Senegal I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Senegal when we went to Senegal that was my second time going i went back in 1984 and um and just always loved loved the place but i was getting up in age and so a lot of those places are really kind of hard <laughs> mm. and i needed to be in a place that had mm, a little more infrastructure mm. and that i could afford and so when i got to south africa I had to fly from Joburg down to Cape Town uh, to do some organizing while the group was walking in South Africa. And so I flew down to Cape Town. And the minute I got off the plane and got into the car, uh, they had a driver pick me up. And once we started driving and I saw Table Mountain, I knew I was home. Wow. It's the most magnificent city that I've ever been to. It is absolutely, it's spiritual. And it just grabbed me. And I was like, wow, I think this is it. And I had an opportunity to be there for almost a month before the 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 full group arrived. Mm -hmm. And so I got to learn my way around the city. I learned how to use the public transportation. I walked a lot while I was there. And I met a lot of activists and ex-combatants who were an integral part of the struggle and started hearing those stories and interviewing people. And I was like, yeah, this is where I need to be. This is where I need to be. And so the group came. Uh, we did some activities there. And then we had a closing ceremony at St. Cyprian's School in their chapel. And then we sent everybody off. I stayed an extra week and just hanging out with the with the wonderful people that I had met and some of the local organizers that, that worked with us. And they all said, Ingrid, you have to come back. You have to come back. We are new. We have been on lockdown for 50 years under the apartheid regime. And we need you to come back here and work with us and work with our young people because we want to learn from you. And I says, No, I want to come back because I need to learn from you. I need to learn who the heck I am. Mm-hmm. And I said, Well, give me six months. And I went back five months later. And I went back for the Parliament of World Religions. Because the pilgrimage was named as one of its, there were I think there were like eight recipients, and the pilgrimage was one of the recipients to receive the gift of service to the world, accommodation. I went back with the with the small delegation. I think there were eight of us that went back for the parliament, and the parliament was, uh, I think it was a maybe twelve days, and when those folks left, I stayed. And I stayed for ten years.
0: Wow, what a transformative journey, really.
1: Oh my goodness, I stayed for ten years. My daughter decided to stay at home, and my son, who was, you know, he was a, he was a full-grown man by that time. They wished me well. They were like, "Mom, you're really going to do this?" And I said, "Yeah, I think I want to. I want to go there and live." Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I did, and I stayed ten years, and it changed my life. The pilgrimage journey changed my life. And then spending 10 years in South Africa, I learned a lot about who I am and what and, and what it means to be African. Mm. And so I I continued to to travel back and forth. I moved back to the US because my son during those 10 years met a lovely young woman and they have two gorgeous daughters, and I came back to help to raise my grandkids because I felt like I was working with other people's children who knew me more, who knew me better than my own grandchildren did. Mm. And that didn't feel right. Sure. So I came back in 2009, and but continue to go back every year for three or four months at a time and doing you know different um, arts-related projects. And sometimes I'll take, you know, a colleague with me and we'll do master classes or, or perform with the, with the local artists. I have quite a community there, very skilled and gifted people who are youth workers, community workers, community activists. And they're all artists as well. You know, they're, they're performers, they're writers, they're poets. Cape Town is just a magnificent place. So I I I can't talk more about it because I, it's just, it's, it's a lot. We need a part two. <laughs> I know, I know. But
0: well, we can do that if you like. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about the organization that you're working with now, the Crossing the Waters. Is it Crossing the
1: Waters? Yeah, yes. In 2008, I was commissioned by an organization here, a nonprofit, to help them create Performing Arts Exchange. With South Africa. And that really excited me because I always wanted to find a way to bring South Africans, South African artists slash activists here to the US to engage with their American counterparts and wasn't sure how I could really pull that off without a lot of funding. And so I've signed on to it. I was like, yeah, I would love, love to do that. So uh, they signed me on as a consultant and I. Organize, help them to organize a performing arts exchange. They said, we don't even know what that would look like, but there's money for it and we want to do it. And so um, I says, well, I can tell you what it looks like because I already had it designed in my head, what I would do if I had the opportunity. I brought in 11 South African artists of all disciplines. So I had dancers, I had poets, I had spoken word artists, I had a jazz musician. I had a dancer who was deaf and he's a brilliant dancer and two black South African women filmmakers. And so I brought this group here and they, and we partnered them with the, with their American counterparts and they went into communities here and we had different sites here in Western Massachusetts and Connecticut, um, Hartford, and they did projects with young people in the communities. And which culminated into a big kind of like extravaganza at the end. And then six months later, the American group came to South Africa and we did, we replicated what we did in the States in South Africa. And so that it was so exciting and was so well done. I was like, okay, I want to continue this work. I want to do another one. But of course, the money dried up. The money comes from the State Department and the State Department doesn't refund projects, which to me makes no sense, especially when a project has been so successful, you know. So I says, well, you know what? I'm just going to create my own agency, my own organization, and I'm going to start doing this work. And that way I can engage with South Africa a lot. And so I created Crossing the Waters Institute for Cultural Exchange. And I created that, I guess it was around 2012 when we became incorporated. And so that's the work that we're doing today. So I look at Crossing the Waters Institute for Cultural Exchange as a direct outcome of the interfaith pilgrimage of the Middle Passage, Mm -hmm. because I approach the work in the same way that we approach um, the pilgrimage. And that is by connecting with communities, people in communities, with community centers, with churches, and creating programs and projects with With the people in these communities, we're in the twenty fifth year. This is the anniversary year of the ending of the pilgrimage. What we're trying to do is to create an endowment so that the work has sustainability and longevity, so we really need a really strong we have a good infrastructure, but now we need the money to back up all of these projects uh, because you know we raise a little bit of money we do the project then the money is over then the project has to end and then by the time we raise more money we've lost the people and we have to you know regroup and so we want we want sustainability and we want to be able to help people in the communities with work you know so that they can run these programs i don't need to run the programs there's so yeah. many brilliant people out there that want to do this work you know and that we've trained and so that's what we're we're embarking on now with this 25th anniversary legacy campaign. And I wanted to run it in Boston. I wanted to run the campaign out of Boston. Boston being my hometown, mm-hmm. I still have family there and I still have community there. And I think there's better resources there and, and, and partnerships like the Trotter uh, Institute. Um, like the Dudley Branch Library. And I really wanted to, to run the campaign where there is a large population of Black folks and people people of African uh, descent and Black and brown people, uh, if you will. Amherst is a wonderful community. I raised my children here, but it's very white. Mm-hmm. And doing this legacy campaign, uh, because it's so African-centered, really needs to be in a Black community. And so that's what brings me back to Boston. I like the fact uh, that
0: you focus on making cross-cultural connections well beyond the Boston region, across Massachusetts, and the Atlantic. I think that's so uh, important, these diasporic exchanges. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I w- I want to do more in the diaspora. You know, we're we're constantly looking for other connections. We're we're very connected to Haiti, but Haiti is in such turmoil right now. There's just no way that we can we can go there. You know, have boots on the ground and 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 doing a lot of work. It's just it's too dangerous right now. But Haiti is one of the places. Ghana. We have a a a great connection in Senegal. So we're hoping to kind of start branching out to other places in the diaspora and most definitely Brazil, which I've I've never been. A small Mm -hmm. delegation went for the pilgrimage, but I wasn't part of that.
0: A little bit about like the greater impact of the interfaith pilgrimage, but also where people can find out more information. I know there was a PBS Documentary?
1: Yeah, there's a documentary, and you can find it now on YouTube, and it's called This Far by Faith, African-American Spiritual Journeys, mm-hmm. and it's in six parts, mm-hmm. and we're segment six, and ours is called Rise Up and Call Their Names. This Far by Faith was, was, was actually put out by a Boston-based Black film company, a documentary film company called Black Side Films. And they're the ones that did Eyes on the Prize. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they did The Great Depression. They, they have a number of them under under their belt. And it was Dr. Vincent Harding who was our advisor, but he was also an advisor for this documentary, this film documentary. He went to the executive director of Black Side Film at the time. He's now passed away. Henry Hampton and said, are you doing anything with the Interfaith Pilgrimage of the Middle Passage, and they didn't know anything about us. Mm. And he says, oh, well, no, you have to do that. And so it was under his recommendation that we were uh, became a part of the series. So they didn't travel with us. But when you watch the um, documentary, our segment, you would think that they were with us every step of the way. Mm. They did a brilliant job. We had a lot of footage that we were able to give them. And they put together a really, really beautiful hour-long segment. So we're very proud of that.
0: So we have to make sure that we share the information to the documentary and the show notes. I will make sure that everybody. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They they can find it on on YouTube and I can also give you a link. Yes, I'll share it on your website. You could share. Mm
0: -hmm. So as we come to a close in our conversation, Ingrid, tell us a little bit. It sounds like you are not ready to stop. And what is next for you in your uh, journey? Yeah. What's next? Oh my
1: goodness. It's, I always say, okay, it's time to slow down and just, you know, Mm. get back to Cape Town and sit at the beach, you know, and, and do nothing, but this, that's not going to happen. And so I can't stop creating, you know, and these ideas come up and then I have to make them happen. We have a couple of projects uh, that we're getting ready to um, launch next year in South Africa. One has already kind of been semi-launched, but they're having a little, uh, some, a few little snags. So we're we're going to head there in July to kind of fix it up. But uh, we started an after-school program for mm-hmm. elementary school kids and, uh, called Intusinka. And I'll send you the information on that. And it's also on our website.
0: Okay, sure. And okay.
1: then we want to create a performing arts department for a brilliant high school that we visited last year and became quite close with the principal and the um, and one of the one of the teachers the history teacher there their kids are so talented but they you know it's a they you know they're in one of the one of the poor really poor poor town well, all the townships are poor but one of the largest and uh townships in in Cape Town and their school is in containers Every classroom is a container. So they must have like 50 containers on this property. Mm. And each container is a classroom. So they don't have a physical building. But the spirit of this place is so amazing. And the kids, are these teenagers are just brilliant. And they're all so talented. And so I asked the principal, I said, do you have a performing arts department here? And so she says, no, I wish we did in Ingrid. She said, because there's, there's so much talent here. And so we want to go back and help them create a performing arts program for for the school. So that's two things. And then another major project we want to build there, and we want to build a cultural center and also a place for young people who are being exploited in the community. We want to bring these, and, and it's mainly young girls, who are falling pregnant at the age of 10 and 11 and 12 years old Hmm. and who find themselves heads of households because their parents have either died from AIDS or alcoholism. And these kids find themselves with no family, but they have young siblings. And so what do they do? They want to keep the family together. And in order to do that, they need money. But I'm 12 years old. I don't I can't get a job. And I'm not in school. And so they get exploited by, you know, men. And so it's a lot of sex trafficking going on, as it is all over the world. Sure. It's in crisis mode now. And the women that we engage with when we were, th- we were there for three months uh, last year, me and two uh, two colleagues from, from Crossing the Waters, and every person we talked to in the communities was saying, can you please help us? We need help. With our young people, with our young girls, we at our wits end, and there doesn't seem to be any active services for children. And I say that loosely because I haven't done a lot of research around it, but from what I hear. And I mean, you know, and you can see, you know, it's all this stuff that's happening. And, you know, where does the government uh, step in? So we want to go and work with these women. There's a group called South African Women in Dialogue. Mm-hmm. that are working on this very issue and want to partner with us. So we're partnering with the Treehouse Foundation, who builds homes for foster families here in the U.S., and they want to branch out and have a tree, and start having treehouse communities all over the world. And uh, so we talked to them and we said, well, what about the first one being on the African continent? And they love the idea. So they're working with us and helping us doing the planning. We're working with an architect and that's what's coming on down the pike uh, probably in the next 5 years which hopefully will be up and running.
0: That's great. You're not slowing down at all, Ingrid? No, whole I know. New life You you're starting <laughs> with the whole new life of activism.
1: Yeah. But well, we're training a lot of young people and we have a lot of people that share in the vision and want to help and want to work with us. And so that lightens the load and you know I did this work by myself Eddie for so many years and I think it's just in the past I would say maybe six years that we have brought people on board that are really really dedicated and and, and committed to doing this work with me so that's I, important I feel very blessed
0: you have to have partners and collaborators
1: and absolutely it's so cool. important
0: So, Ingrid, I want to thank you for taking out time in your busy day to join me on Black in Boston and beyond. And thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for asking me.